Kia ora everybody, no my hiding my key 76 small rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa New Zealand. Welcome to episode 21. Last week, me, Jeremy, and Ash and Tash and, uh, and Matt are here as well, attended in situ the New Zealand Institute of Architects conference, two days worth of fantastic international speakers, many of whom we spoke to there and we'll be sharing those conversations in the next few episodes of the podcast. First up, Christopher Hawthorne, who regular listeners will be familiar with because we spoke to him when he was in the country two years ago. In the last two years, things have changed a lot from him. After 16 years as architecture critic of the LA Times, he was handpicked by Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA, to be Los Angeles' chief design officer, a job he's now waded into and spent the last nine months at, I believe. So we started our chat with him and this fascinating new role that he has by asking how the new job is going. Um, the job, which is still, I'm about nine or ten months into the job, so it's still less than a year. Uh, it still feels quite new, and it's been remarkable. It's been um, fascinating, challenging, and really, I'm very happy that I made the leap. Um, and it feels like in education, I'm getting some kind of a crash course PhD this is in a city government. So this is you. Newly created position called Chief Design Officer, um, created in the mayor's office by our mayor, Eric Garcetti. Um, and there's something of a model within his administration. There are other so-called chief positions. So there is a chief sustainability officer. And there has been that post since the beginning, essentially, of his first term. There is a chief resilience officer. We now have a chief procurement officer. And I'm working quite closely with that, that office and thinking about how we can improve the quality of public projects in the city. In other ways, it's very much an experiment. And we're figuring, out, figuring it out as we go. I have the benefit of having a boss in Mayor Garcetti, who's quite interested in and engaged by, sophisticated about architecture and design, and that was one of the main reasons I decided to take the job, is because he um, is quite quite knowledgeable about these subjects that I'm working on. And so when I'm meeting with him, I think it's a meeting that he's, you know, that he looks forward to, that he enjoys that conversation, is something he enjoys. Um, and I'm sure that's not true for every one of the meetings he has during the course of the day, as enthusiastic as he is about, it, about his job. So he is in his second term. All of the mayors in LA are term limited to two terms. So it, I am coming in midstream, but another reason I decided to take the job is that uh, because of a change, a one-time change on our electoral calendar, his second term is 18 months longer than a typical term. So. When I started, he still had five years left, and he, we still have almost four years before the end of the term. So that seemed like enough time to get some significant projects going, even though I was coming in essentially in the, in the middle of the administration. So that deadline is an interesting one to think about. That's the end of 2022, is the end of his term. Next mayor takes office on um, New Year's Day 2023, and then we also have, as I mentioned this morning in my talk, the Olympics coming back to Los Angeles in 2028. So those two deadlines actually work quite well in tandem. Five years is enough, four to five years enough to, I think, plan some significant new architecture, and 10 years perhaps enough time to execute mm -hmm. some things. Um, so the, those two horizons have been useful in shaping the way that I've um, approached the job. So what do you hope to achieve in that time? Because I imagine the scope is potentially broad. The scope is quite broad. Um, I hope to, I would say, lift the level of dialogue and conversation about architecture and design. So that's a big part of my charge from the mayor. Improve 
the architecture uh, and design of significant projects, that is to say projects that have some kind of citywide importance, and as you said, the, the potential scope is so wide that I have to be careful about where I direct my attention and spend my time, but there's certain projects that, and I can be happy to talk about a few, that have a clear importance citywide um, that I hope to uh, improve, I hope to, to work on to the extent that, that we will have shown some improvement in their architecture by the time they're finished. And then third is thinking more about legacy, some changes in planning frameworks or procurement or, or models that we use to, to design and build public projects um, that will outlast my tenure and the, and the mayor's tenure. So in that last category, I've been spending quite a bit of time on procurement, looking at design excellence models that have been pursued in other cities. In the American context, that's New York, under Michael Bloomberg when he was mayor, there's a federal, national government program through the General Services Administration that produced a lot of very good courthouses and other federal buildings through a very, uh, very specific and rigorous design review and procurement process. Um, but also looking abroad, looking at, I've actually been looking at the Flemish government's um, procurement models. They're quite interesting and I think useful for us. There's some smaller cities in America that have, have pursued uh, interesting programs. So that's one way in which if we are able to put in place a new system that that will, I, I hope, produce a legacy. And then the other, the other element that's worth mentioning is that we are also in the process of rethinking or rewriting many, if not most, of the, of the major planning and zoning frameworks in the city. So not only are we investing heavily in new public transportation, as I mentioned, in my talk this morning, we're also um, rewriting our, our zoning code for the first comprehensive, in the first comprehensive way since 1946. We're rewriting all of our community plans for their 35 community plan areas in the city of LA, uh, and there are draft versions of two of those with all the rest to follow. Um, and so there are a number of ways in which the basic frameworks um, might be improved to promote better architecture and design. So a challenge for me is to think about if we have consensus on a particular kind of improvement or innovation. I mentioned designing for shade this morning for an era of climate change, figuring out precisely the best place to fold that policy change into is that, um, again, shade is something that could be addressed through our street furniture contract, through the way that we design our sidewalk, through our tree canopy, through what we ask of, of private architects and builders as they uh, potentially could um, provide a kind of architectural shade over an arcade or uh, covered walkway. So that's just one example. And it's a, with all of these um, projects, it's a question of where best to um, put that improvement, whether that's a policy, zoning, community plan change. In some other cases, it will make more sense to have a design competition to put to put a set of questions on the agenda because we're not ready politically to uh, make that leap in the policy framework, right? So there are a lot of, um, and I think a lot of issues related to housing where given the difficulties of the politics of housing in Los Angeles, it will make more sense to think about a design competition just to put something on the table or on the agenda. You also face in LA, and you alluded to many of these in your talk this morning, a unique set of challenges in Los Angeles, which it turns out are a lot of the challenges that many other developed cities are facing. Do you want to run through what you see as those biggest, mm. uh, the biggest challenges that you and the administration are facing right now? So the one that I mentioned this, this morning that's not um, 
doesn't um, play out in other cities is we have some we have a particular relationship with uh, with Hollywood and with um, filmmakers who use the public spaces of the city and have actually resisted some of our efforts at placemaking and adding bike lanes, for example. So our downtown has a kind of generic quality in some quarters, what we call the historic core, is able to stand in for all kinds of other world cities, whether the what's being filmed as a car commercial or a feature film. And our efforts to actually bring a sense of place and better urban design to those spaces actually um, brought us into conflict with some of the production houses that use downtown, and they like the idea of it being generic and sort of place less because that plays well to their work. But in other ways, you're absolutely right. The set of issues is really a set of issues. A little, we talked about some of these last time I was here. Really, an effort to establish what many in LA have described as a kind of post suburban identity. So, that's to begin to wean ourselves from total dependence on the car, invest more heavily in, in various forms of transportation um, with an eye toward creating carbon free zones or areas in the city. We are one of the C40 cities, and one of our commitments under C40. Um, is creating these fossil fuel-free zones in the city, and where we really trail behind cities like Madrid and others that have pedestrianized significant sections of their downtowns. But the struggle is really to return some attention and investment to the public realm, give people a range of options um, to get around beyond the private car, um, and really, I would say, return urban design uh, as a focus to the center of our policy agenda. What makes Los Angeles unusual at this point is that the challenges are familiar to many cities. We have raised, though, an unusual amount of money to pay for this investment. So the challenge is not in LA as it is in many cities to kind of scrounge the money together for urban design. It's really more about executing and executing in a efficient and complementary way, these different investments. So we've passed a pair of countywide sales tax measures to pay for transit investment. Those don't sunset, so now it's a penny, it's a, a one cent sales tax increase that over the next 40 years will raise something like 120 to $140 billion. Um, but you could extend that essentially as far as you wanted because it's not, it doesn't have a sunset as of the second of those two. And those, it's important to note, required a supermajority, like almost all tax hikes in the state of California, which is quite a high bar to, to, um, to, to pass. And the last, the second of those uh, in 2016 passed with almost 71% of the vote, so a very clear mandate. And we've had similar ballot measures about housing, paying for uh, permanent supportive housing, paying for parks and open space, paying for new stormwater capture, for example. We've gotten a very clear set of uh, messages from the voters that they're willing and eager, in fact, to invest in that, in, in those um, improvements. So all told, we have, and then if you fold in improvements to the LA River, the Olympics in, in, a, in a decade's time, we have something around the order of $200 billion, which we'll be investing over the next generation or so. And we, we will be making a significant number of decisions about how to spend that money in the next five to 10 years, and quite a few in the next three to five years. Um, so now it's a question of how 
to convince those giant agencies which are responsible for executing that work that design should be at the center of their mission. They have mm -hmm. not, to put it mildly, historically thought of architecture and design as fundamental to their mission. So the County Transit Authority, for example, is run by transportation engineers and they think of their job as to stitch together and expand this transit network, but they have at the same time become the biggest patron of architecture and landscape architecture in the region and arguably in, in the country. Another example is we, thanks to that transit measure, we have money to add a bike path along the entire length of the LA River, which as I mentioned this morning is 51 miles long. Two thirds of that roughly is within the city limits of Los Angeles. So for comparison's sake, the High Line which has been such a transformative project in Manhattan is three miles long, I think, in total. So we have 51 miles. We have money to pay for a bikeway on the entire length. It will be a radically transformative project in creating a kind of essentially mostly north to south backbone of bike infrastructure. But figuring out where to put it, how to design it, even just the alignment is, is, is really, really tricky. So we have to thread it under and above existing bridges, infrastructure over... Um, rail lines that are right up against the river. There's some interest in putting some uh, part of it in the riverbed itself, which would have to, which would be remarkable, but would also have to be flexible enough to be closed when it's still a flood control channel as well as a river. Um, so that the meetings that I've been uh, part of on that particular question have been, to me, really emblematic of both the opportunities and the challenges. So we have this project funded. We're trying to get it built very quickly. We have a huge number of political obstacles that are design questions fundamentally, where, where it goes, how we make sure we have it running along each bank in terms of equity, how we think about the, let's say, horizontal connections, the connections from communities into this, this uh, bike path, what those designs look like, what the graphic signage, wayfinding, what the kind of graphic design language is, all those things are yet to be determined, and that's one of the probably 50 things that, that I could <laughs> list that are like that, that are fascinating challenges, but remarkably complicated at the same time. I thought it was really interesting that both um, you and Sadie um, were dealing with quite similar issues in your talks this morning, this idea of infrastructure, which um, historically has been managed in quite a, a separate way from um, design of the city as a whole, and, and that you both also touched on um, the idea of procurement and changing procurement models. And essentially, sort of with both of those ideas, um, the, the building of infrastructure and the, the, the models of procurement embedding design um, uh, at the, the heart of, of both of those ideas. Are you finding with the current administration that there is an appetite for that or is, is that still very much an uphill battle? The, the current federal administration in Washington, the Trump administration, oh, or, or no, you mean more locally? More locally in Los Angeles. So I was fascinated by Sadie's talk, and I have quite a bit to uh, ask her about and learn mm -hmm. from in terms of her experience in the UK, um, particularly working on high-speed rail, but also the, the, all, a number of procurement projects mm -hmm. that she has uh, been involved in that have produced really great work. It's funny, when I was making this uh, leap to this new job, and I talked to some folks in other cities who had done similar jobs. There are no direct equivalents in American cities, but there are people who had pursued some similar kinds of ambitions in city government or in national government, and, and um, almost all of them mentioned the word procurement. So they said, you need to learn about procurement, you need to find, uh, meet some procurement lawyers, learn about procurement law, 
was very clear that that was um, where I needed to dig in. And we've also, as I mentioned, just named a chief procurement officer in the city. It's uh, There are a particular set of challenges and, and, uh, and chapters of LA's history to look to, though, because the city has been so shaped by infrastructural ambition, investment, particularly linear infrastructure. So the streetcars, which we had crisscrossing the whole region in the early decades of the 20th century, um, then the freeways, of course, some of which followed that original um, set of paths laid out by the streetcars. And now some of the new public transit lines are using the old streetcar rights of way. So Rainer Banham talked about a transportation palimpsest on the map of Los Angeles, and that's very apparent in this new batch of um, trains and light rail lines and subway lines that we're building. Um, and then the LA River, of course, too, is this great, um, whatever we make of it from an ecological point of view or in terms of it, what it says about our relationship to water and stormwater as an expression of infrastructural muscle and ambition. It's, it's quite impressive, and the scale at 51 miles was remarkable. And th so those linear infrastructures, largely in concrete, across the whole basin, across the whole region of Los Angeles, have really marked the city more dramatically than I think has been in the, than has been the case in other cities. Um, and I didn't even mention the infrastructure of the port, which leads to uh, rail and truck lines leading north, and that, that you know, we have this incredible infrastructural traffic that begins in, with containers being delivered at the port and put on trucks and, and sent out essentially to the rest of the continent from Los Angeles. Um, and so we have a history of thinking of the city as being dependent on and shaped by those infrastructures and those networks. Um, but we have an opportunity now to reimagine what that could look like for the 21st century. Um, but in terms of the procurement models, I think we um, have, we, we don't have a particularly strong track record of producing public work, at least in the last several decades. And so we need to reassess that in a very fundamental way. Who, who, who makes up the list of architects that we're drawing from for public work? Could that be a more interesting, diverse list? Are there certain projects that we could set aside and have a really rigorous kind of design excellence program? Um, because if, you know, my work is very disparate, I'm working on a lot of projects across many departments, but I think as, I've, as I near the year mark, if there's one consistent thread, it's really thinking about how to make the city a better client and patron of design excellence, architectural excellence, architectural ambition, architectural experimentation. So we did have a period of the city supporting really fantastic civic architecture through the third 1930s. So in the 20s alone, we built City Hall, where I work, a great tower, really the only great vertical architecture in Los Angeles um, by a design team led by John Parkinson, finished in 1928. We have a fantastic central library by Bertram Goodhue. Um, so we did have a history, and then we lost that thread like a lot of American cities, like a lot of world cities. And then that architectural ambition and experimentation in particular really migrated to the private realm. And so beginning with the case study houses, or even before that, works by early modernists like Schindler and Neutra. I talked about Irving Gill, then the case study, then the early houses of the LA School Architects, Frank Gehry, Tom Main, Frank Israel, all the rest. Um, and LA sort of still has a reputation in other American cities as being a place where you can come as a young architect to build, but that really hasn't been the case for a long time. So now, 
that we lost the public thread of patronage of important architecture and then that migrated to the private realm, but those opportunities in the private realm have dried up too because we've run out of um, uh, unbuilt land. It's become a very expensive, in some ways very regulated, risk-averse in some ways place. And so if you're a young architect, it's difficult to find those young clients who have a patch of land where they want to do a house. So given how much money we're investing in public projects, it seems a very opportune moment to think about reconnecting to that history of amb ambition and experimentation and thinking of the city's role as a client or patron for important civic projects. And so I would say that that's a kind of connective thread in a lot of the work that I'm doing now. Because LA, to some degree, has run out of land, right? So density is, you're having to consider density mm. for almost the first time ever in the city's history. Forgive me as I take a bite. As I take a bite of my lunch. Um, yes, it's very true. I was expecting a longer question. Um, <laughs> I should have kept going. Um, no, I'm just joking. Um, it's very true that we, I think I'm actually remembering, I may have mentioned this in the first podcast, Mike Davis in City of Courts, a famous and famously dystopian book about Los Angeles, published in 1990, described LA as the city that ate the desert, that dreamt of being infinite. And that was very much the... Um, the notion that, and the spirit that carried Los Angeles through the 20th century, that idea that we were always expanding at the edges and that all of our problems actually could be solved by means of growth. And a lot of LA econ uh, economists and historians talk about the growth machine, in fact, as our chief industry, that we had an aerospace industry in Hollywood, but we also, also had, as perhaps our primary industry, the growth machine itself, this idea and eternal growth and expansion at the edges that would always you know, that, that we could grow our way out of all these problems was um, was a consistent philosophy across the 20th century in Los Angeles. That has completely changed. So no one now would describe Los Angeles as a city that dreamt of being infinite. We've absolutely, under, we absolutely understand and, um, uh, and see the limits of that mindset. We've run out of territory to expand into. Even if we believed in a kind of suburbanized model of growth and sprawl, the distances between where there's unbuilt territory and the center of the city or any job center of the region are too great to travel, even on a freeway without traffic. So we've just gotten so far um, that that idea has collapsed on itself. So the attention, I would describe LA now as much more a city that is turned, that is, that is folding back on itself, that is turning its attention back, I won't say toward the center because we have many centers, so let's say toward the middle or toward the centers, toward the places where we had developed rather lightly before and we're now building them a second or third chapter um, more intensely. So the story of LA was very, relative. I mean, it was actually relatively dense, kind of a thinly spread density across a massive region. And in many of those neighborhoods, the, the structures that were there, as Rainer Banham mentioned, were, in his book, were the first buildings that had ever been on that piece of land. And that has also really changed. Now we see many more layers, many more the challenges to um, new projects to deal with the history of the site and the existing context, et cetera. Um, and so it's a clear shift of trajectory and, inf and uh, emphasis that we're looking back toward the middle, but that raises all kinds of political problems too, because the people who had sort of colonized some of those more lightly developed areas, particularly the single-family neighborhoods, they um, the city worked quite well for many of them, and they have quite a bit to protect. And I, I gather that's also true in Auckland, and in and in many cities. And so um, they 
those neighborhoods still carry a lot of political clout, and so um, having a conversation about the future of those neighborhoods can be quite difficult. I will say that that conversation in the American context has changed quite a bit, so we're looking closely at a, the example of Minneapolis, for example, in Minnesota, which has passed quite a progressive new plan for called the Minneapolis 2040 plan, which addresses this question, this set of questions. Seattle. Seattle's Planning Commission has put out a document on the future of the single-family house, which is also quite clear about saying we need to put this set of questions on the table. And it's quite dramatic, actually. The argument in that, in, in that document is essentially, to oversimplify a little, many single-family houses in American, uh, many single-family neighborhoods in American cities grew out of racial exclusion, redlining, and their future is challenged by climate change and the necessity to, to think differently about uh, resources, sharing resources and being more energy efficient. And so that makes this the crucial moment to think about what the future of the single family zoning, or what the future of the single family neighborhood is. Um, and so the conversation nationally has changed quite a bit. We have a new governor in California, Gavin Newsom, has also put some questions related to housing at the forefront of his agenda. So I think both, it's important that we have this conversation in LA, but also we have to acknowledge from the beginning the political challenges of, of doing that. One more question before we wind up and let you return to the conference. It's more of a statement, actually. You sound optimistic. Mm. Um, I am inherently optimistic about Los Angeles. Um, I think there's a fantastic book which I teach every year, probably still the best um, book about Los Angeles called Southern California and the subtitle is An Island on the Land. It was written by Carrie McWilliams. It was published in 1946, right after World War II. And it was the first effort to really think about the entirety of the built environment in Los Angeles. And it was, McWilliams was very clear-eyed about looking at the uh, fraught racial and ethnic history of Los Angeles, the ways in which, let's say, Anglo elites had attempted and succeeded in whitewashing our successive uh, Native American, Spanish, and Mexican pasts in order to create a kind of American and Anglo elite in Los Angeles. Um, and so he is not naive. He's not naive in the book about, about the complexity of dealing with that history. But he ends it with a very clear expression of optimism in what Los Angeles might go on to be as a world metropolis. And the, um, in, in the decades after World War II, and I really admire that balance and clarity. So I think we do need to do a much better job, as I mentioned this morning, grappling with some of those fraught histories, but I'm also optimistic about the potential for the city. Um, and we're really, you know, we, there, there's a fantastic book by a, a professor at USC, University of Southern California, named Manuel Pastor, P-A-S-T-O-R, and it's called State of Resistance. And it's also quite optimistic. It basically argues that California in the 1980s and 90s went through the kind of almost existential or identity crisis or period of anxiety and tumult that the rest of the country is going through, as reflected by the election of Trump. We had a ballot measure to um, a kind of English-only series of ballot measures. There was a lot of anxiety about immigration. Um, there was, there was very aggressive mass incarceration. There was 
um, a lot of violence, uprising after the Rodney King verdicts in the 90s. There was a sense that the whole city was coming apart at the seams in the way that, you know, there's similar conversations about the kind of larger uh, uh, national political experiment being uh, coming apart or pulled apart now. And he argues that actually that California and Los Angeles in particular came through that and we now have a, a much more tolerant attitude and acceptance about this kind of multicultural future. Um, and he sees in that some seeds of optimism. Again, not being naive about what we've come through or what we still face in terms of challenges. So um, we, you know, the, the political obstacles are what they are. I wrote about the city and City Hall long enough to know where those minefields are, and they haven't, you know, I, I certainly haven't changed my feelings about what the challenges are, but I also think this is the right moment to be thinking about how we can be um, coming up with more effective strategies to produce better public architecture in particular. Thanks, Christopher, for speaking to us and for coming back to New Zealand, and we wish you all the best for the new gig. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's really great to be back. Thanks. So that was Christopher Hawthorne, the Chief Design Officer for the City of Los Angeles, and far from being an apocalyptic place, Los Angeles seems like a really exciting place to be from speaking to him. Yeah, and it helps to have $140 billion at your disposal to make it so. Well, it was really interesting, I think, that the people of Los Angeles voted in a new tax yeah. by a supermajority, 70%, to say, yes, we want to pay more to build transit and make our city more beautiful and habitable, which... I find incredibly encouraging. And as you said, in the context of the conversations we're having here in New Zealand about a potential new tax, amazing, right? Mm. Super majority passes it. Tax is love. <laughs> True. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> be a massive job, though. I mean, it's such a big place. And partly, you talked a little bit about the fact that they've reached their limits now. You know, there's no longer viable to keep spreading out um, because they've reached you know, strict limits or it's now becoming too far away from the centres. And so, but yeah, imagine having a job to be transforming that place. You know, it's a massive. I mean, you talked about the cycleway on the river, mm. 50 miles or something of cycleway? 50, 60 miles of connected cycleway, and the high line is three. Yeah. 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 Extraordinary. And I think what um, I loved about talking to him is that he's obviously an optimist, but also that he, to me, seemed to have um, a real handle on the potential complexity of his job and quite a realistic view of what was possible to achieve in the four years or so he has to go and that Eric Garcetti's time term limits um, come up. And uh, the most encouraging part was that he was not trying to kind of build a suite of signature buildings that would be kind of memorial, memorial to him, but bedding in design protocols that would raise the design mm. quality, hopefully, of everything the city builds from now on. Mm. I particularly loved um, what he said about making the city a better client um, because that uh, approach to um, procurement and encouraging design is... Uh, I think quite a new one and quite a brave one for a city to undertake. It gives possibility or, or um, the potential for, say, younger practitioners to come through and to for the city to encompass d different um, viewpoints when it comes to design and those outcomes. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned procurement and, and, and Christopher was the first speaker of the day. Um, and I remember on that first day, both he and Sadie Morgan both talked about procurement. 
and you know I'm super fascinated at it because that's I think it's fantastic to see a speaker put the emphasis on the importance of procurement and getting good design outcomes whereas we it's common that you hear talk about how design can overcome bad procurement methodologies and then you've got this roll of the dice but a really solid and robust procurement process put up front what do you ask for what do you expect what do you emphasize what do you reward and what do you disincentivize sets in place you know I think just the right kind of ground for the best kind of design outcomes and if anything I think it actually it actually widens out the funnel to tolerate a bigger range of design answers to it because mm. at the moment with with these with our current procurement methods it's quite a narrow way in which you can answer the question or even a narrow set of practices that are capable of answering the question so good procurement can set up ways to create more opportunity for different design responses different scales of responses different collaborative approaches so it's definitely on that first day that to hear that kind of makes a practitioner's ears kind of spring up and go oh thank goodness someone's making the to bringing the conversation even earlier than the point where the first pen hits the page as an idea yeah if you don't ask the right questions you know how can you hope yeah. to kind of get um varied and, and interesting and innovative responses yeah yeah one of the things that really struck me was that you said that the process they had now and i imagine this applies to all cities, you all know this better than I, is that the people that get rewarded now are the ones who are experts at navigating yeah. <laughs> the mm. procurement process. They're not necessarily the best designers, and so yeah. design ends up taking a back seat to the navigation of these often Byzantine I think that's very, very approaches. possible, eh? Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's also really nice to see a former journalist, as a sort of former journalist myself, forging another career post-media meltdown. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the same job at Britomar, but I've got a slightly smaller area under my purview. Yes. We can also reveal that in, in one of the subsequent interviews there will be a view expressed about a journalist flexing in the architecture space, which we'll save for a future interview. Yeah, that's right. Stay <laughs> tuned for a future episode of um, 76 Small Rooms in which journalists gets trash talked by a very prominent <laughs> architect and I'm the brunt of it. Matthew thought it was hilarious and I thought it was kind of interesting too. But anyway that was um, our episode with Christopher Hawthorne. Thank you very much for listening and stay tuned for more great talks from in situ, the NZIA conference and our upcoming episodes. And we'd just like to thank um, NZIA for their support in arranging these interviews this time around. That's it from us. Thanks, bye. 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 See ya.